Our sermon text this evening can be found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 through 12. Matthew 12, 3 through 12. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or, her, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, wherever I look, I see a single person who's divorced. I see a married couple who's divorced and remarried. I see a married couple struggling. So I pray for a very special grace to deliver a word concerning your vision for marriage. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would draw near and fill me with your Holy Spirit and give an unusual receptivity to truth so that I could speak it and others could hear it. Protect us from error and give us an eternal perspective on life. Not like the world who think that this life is all there is and therefore they better get what they can get while the getting is good, for there is no more. Whereas for us, by comparison to what is to come, this is a vapor's breath. Grant us an eternal perspective. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said last time that there are two ways to show compassion and care in relation to divorce. Not at all meaning, as someone asked me, that one should choose between these two but that we should pursue both of them together always. The first was we ought to, as a church and as individuals, come alongside divorced persons while they grieve and while they, wherever necessary, repent of anything that needs to be repented of, and that we stay by them through painful transitions and that we fold them into our lives and help them find a way to enjoy the forgiveness 
that there is in Christ and the strength for new kinds of obedience, which is also in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the first way. The second way of loving, caring, and showing compassion is to articulate a hatred for divorce and to show as fully and as compellingly as we can why God hates divorce and do everything we can to help people avoid it. So those are the two ways, and it is not easy to do them both because some feel that when you're doing the first, you're being lax on the second, and some feel that when you're doing the second, you're being unkind in regard to the first. And my own conviction is that given the Jesus we have and the Bible we have, if you neglect either, you're not a fully loving person. One of the reasons several weeks ago I spent two weeks on singleness and the dignity of it, the worth of it, the Christ-exalting potential of it is because I'm aware that divorce throws thousands of people into it, usually against their will. That was in my mind. And if you weren't around to hear those messages, you might have thought they were only preached in regard to pre-married people. They weren't. They had in view the more painful singleness that comes after a divorce as well. If we're going to stand where I took my stand, namely believing that marriage is the lifelong commitment to one living spouse, the lifelong commitment to one living spouse, then we must be prepared to love single people, divorced single people, because there's going to be a lot of them. With all of our hearts and with all of our homes, and with all of our families. We've got to keep a clear eternal perspective here as Christians. If we take our cues for our emotions and our expectations from the world, the, the teachings of Jesus will simply sound outrageous. But if we take our cues from the Bible concerning how brief this world is, James says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So you go out on a bitter cold Minnesota morning and you go, how long does, you, does this last? A second? On a really cold, moist morning, two seconds? That's our life. Single, married, divorced, not divorced. I think we, we sometimes begin to get into these routines where we think, well, there's this child chapter, there's this teenage chapter, there's this young adult chapter, there's this married chapter, there's this kid chapter, there's this child teenage chapter, there's this empty nest chapter, there's this retirement chapter, and then, then, then God may take me. And that's long and full. Well, it isn't long, and he has a right to take you anytime he pleases. And eternity is very, very long. We've got to keep that in mind. Otherwise, the teachings of Jesus will simply make no sense. You know, when he tells us, 
Rejoice in that day and be glad. What day is he talking about? The day of absolute misery. People are ridiculing you and despising you and saying all kinds of evil against you, falsely casting out your name. Rejoice in that day and be glad. That is crazy talk. Unless this brief momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. Brief, eternal Last week, I took a stand that the most ultimate meaning of marriage is to represent the unbreakable covenant love between Christ and his church. And I argued, if Christ ever breaks his promise, lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth, church of mine, if he ever breaks that promise, you may divorce your spouse. And if he doesn't, don't. Because marriage is about telling that story. The meaning of marriage is Christ keeps covenant with his church. And his new covenant purchased church keeps covenant with him. That's the meaning of marriage. So Jesus, I argued, didn't settle for the Pharisees' appeal to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Because he went back to Genesis 2, 24. And concluded, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, if God makes it, God breaks it. If God makes it, man has no right to break it. God makes all marriages, all of them. Hindu marriages, Buddhist marriages, secular humanist marriages. God makes them. And they have a validity in heaven when a man and a woman take vows to be married to each other. And God breaks it, and he breaks it by death. By death. Which is why when I stood here at just about this very moment last night, stood about right here, and... David and Megan stood right there and we concluded our vows with as long as we both shall live. As long as we both shall live. The other traditional vow says till death do us part. They mean the same thing. That's the conviction behind those traditional vows and they are good ones. Now as you know and many of you have confronted me with this And uh, I know, and I appreciate that. When you take a stand of this kind of radical commitment to lifelong commitment to one living spouse, you create an amazing number of questions that need to be answered. If you believe that the marriage bond is inviolable, 
and that it is illegitimate to remarry after divorce as long as your spouse is living like I do, questions tumble to your mind, both biblical questions and practical questions. So this message is an attempt within the tiny little frame that we have to answer some of those questions. And if I don't get to yours, I'm sorry. There, there is a lot more that has been written and preached on this at Desire and God website, but I will do the best I can in the time we have. Number one, these are questions that I need to answer. Does death end a marriage in such a way that it is legitimate for a spouse to remarry? The biblical answer is yes, and the key text is either 1 Corinthians 7.39 or I'm going to read Romans 7.1 to 3. It goes like this. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as one lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. That's pretty plain. Doesn't need a lot of comment. In other words, Paul says that to divorce and remarry while your spouse is living is adulterous. But to remarry after the death of a spouse is not. I think the reason for that, you like to probe for reasons. You don't have to, but it helps me. I think the reason for that is this. Jesus said, in the resurrection, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. You know, we have romantic notions when we get married that, and we sing silly romance songs about forever Baloney. It will not be forever. 60 years, maybe, on the good side, and then it's over. There is no marriage in the resurrection. Jesus made that very plain. Otherwise, there would be bigamy, and my dad wouldn't know which wife was his. Because my mother died after 36 years of marriage, and my stepmother died after 25 years of marriage, and Then my dad died, and he's not a bigamist in heaven. If that's true, then you understand why the person left behind is free to remarry. Because one spouse, the Lord says, not married. Well, if one spouse is not married, neither is the other one. And therefore, in heaven, marriage ended, and on earth, it also ended. So my father did not sin in marrying Levon any more than he sinned in marrying Ruth. So the answer to the first question, and none of you disagrees with this, I'm sure, is yes, it is legitimate to marry. It is, in fact, good to marry again. If any of you wonders if, if, if I think that it somehow connotes less love for the first spouse if you marry quickly, I don't. I did my father's marriage one year to the day after my mother died. I performed the wedding, and I loved it. 
because he needed another wife. (laughs) For real practical reasons, if nothing else. (laughs) Number two. Second, if a divorced person has already married again, should he or she leave the later, the second, third marriage? Now, the reason this question is urgent is because the words of Jesus put some really negative names on this marriage, right? Take Luke sixteen eighteen. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So you can't read that and just blow this off and say, oh, of course, the second marriage is fine and shouldn't end. I spent an hour on the telephone a few months ago with a woman in tears trying to persuade me that I should teach people to end all second, third and fourth marriages, break them. Because they're adulterous. Now, that's not my answer. I don't think that if you're in a second or a third or a fourth marriage that you should end it. I don't think you should divorce, even though I'm going to argue if your spouse is still living, you shouldn't have entered it. Jesus says that it is unfaithful to your spouse to marry another. He calls it adultery. It's adulterous. We promised till death do us part. We broke our promise. And now we have entered another relationship. And he says, you do that, you're committing adultery. Now, I don't think that having done that, we should break it. I'll give you some Reasons. I think it's a real marriage. I think it's a valid marriage. I don't think it should have happened, but it did happen. Real vows were made. Real sexual union consummated those vows. A real covenant was spoken and, I'm going to argue, maybe purified by the blood of Jesus and set apart for God. In other words... I don't think that a couple who repents and seeks God's forgiveness and receives his cleansing should think of their lives as ongoing adultery. Even though in the eyes of Jesus, that's how they began the relationship. Now, here are my three or four reasons for believing this. I think I have three. Number one. There are several reasons, beginning with Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, where, remember, the Pharisees went back and appealed to this text as permitting divorce. The way that text is written is very striking. It argues that if a woman is kicked out by a man and she goes and marries another man, she is thereby defiled in that relationship. But that relationship is so real and so valid that if this man doesn't want her anymore, she may not go back to the first man. Now, that's a very strange set of circumstances. The word defiling there is very much like Jesus' talk about adultery. 
Moses says, you go there and that happens, there's a defilement. Jesus says, you go there and that happens, that's adulterous. And yet, in that structure, it was a marriage. It was a marriage and it was real and it should not have been broken. Argument number two. Jesus met this woman who'd been married five times. Remember this in John 4? So here she is at the well, and he sees right through her, and he says to her, John 4, 18, You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Hmm. So he's making the distinction between this man you're living with is not your husband which means he must conceive of a husband different than live in. Just live with a guy. That doesn't make you a husband. Husband is made out of vows, commitments, covenants. And you had five of those. So Jesus seems to validate, in some sense, those five. Calls them different than this man. So I'm inclined to think that Jesus looks at these marriages and says, they are marriages. They shouldn't have happened, but they happened, and therefore they're there. They're real. They're valid. Here's the third reason I think couples who remarried when they shouldn't have should stay together. Vows, even when they are made unwisely, generally should be kept in the Bible. When you make a promise that you shouldn't have made, you should keep it. Psalm 15:4, the godly man swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he makes an oath and it turns out really bad and he keeps his oath. Do you remember the story of the Gibeonites? Joshua makes a vow rashly without consulting the Lord not to wipe them out. And they were lying through their teeth that they were people from a far country when they were in fact close neighbors and should have been wiped out according to the decree of God. And once that truth was discovered, Joshua kept his vow. So there are stories like that in the Bible and they incline me to think, God puts a very high premium on promises and vows and oaths and covenants, even when they should not have been made. And therefore, for those three reasons, I will never go to a couple who's on their second or third or fourth marriage and say, It was adulterous of you to move into this, and every night you sleep together, you're committing adultery, and you need to break this marriage and split up. I don't think that's the case. I think it's adulterous to move into it. You break the law of God, but once it's there and new vows have been made, a new marriage is created, and now the great business of life is to sanctify that marriage, purify that marriage. Make that marriage as radically Christ-centered as it can possibly be. And it can be. There are marriages in this church that are second marriages for both partners or for one partner. 
which, in my view, should not have come into being. It was sin to make the decision to leave and then cleave to a new couple. And today are among the most godly marriages in this church. Beautiful, deep, wise, holy, loving, Christ-like people keeping covenant that should never have come into being, but now I believe is washed, cleansed, and they should be there magnifying God in that relationship as forgiven, justified husbands and forgiven, justified wives, followers of Jesus, not committing adultery now in their marriages. It began as it should not have, but it has become holy. So that's my answer to the second question. If you're in that situation, my view is you should stay there and devote your lives to purity and holiness from this day forward and show by this marriage, though it was not the ideal, by this marriage, Jesus keeps covenant. Third question. If an unbelieving spouse insists on leaving a believing spouse, what should the believing spouse do? Now, I invite you to turn with me to the very important passage, 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. If an unbelieving spouse insists on leaving, in other words, sues for divorce, what should the believing spouse do? It could be a man, could be a woman. We have instances of both in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, addresses this issue and has an ambiguous statement in it, at least some considered ambiguous, that I'll try to interpret for you. To the rest, I say, verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. I think that little phrase, won't preach on this, but I think that means I don't have a specific command from the historical teachings of Jesus, but I am led by the Spirit. To the rest, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, just pause there. This is addressed to a real situation. I mean... These early Christians took devotion to Christ very seriously. To have sex with an enemy of the cross did not seem right. Does it seem right to you? We need this text. It ought to feel mm, to be married to an enemy of the cross. And I'm using that phrase from Philippians carefully. This is not an exorbitant person. This is an ordinary unbeliever. doesn't think he's an enemy of the cross. He's a nice guy. Or she's a nice woman. But in stiff-arming the king of kings, they're committing treason. So do you have sex with such a person? So it was a real issue. And here's Paul's answer. Stay together. Verse 14 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Which I take to mean this. Marriage is such a holy union in God's eyes that a believer, a child of God, is not defiled by having sexual relations with an enemy of the cross. And the children born in this union of a a child of God and an enemy of God, the child born does not have any special contamination because of that. That's what I think holy means here. I don't think it means they're saved. Rather, born or married, in this situation, you can be set apart for proper, holy use in the marriage. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, okay, sued for divorce, took off. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the answer to this question is if an unbeliever departs and insists that the marriage be done, goes to court, sues, Paul says, you're called to peace. Let him go. You're not enslaved. Now, what does that mean? Here's the ambiguity. Is the person not enslaved to the marriage and Paul permits them to end it? Or is the person not enslaved to the consequent singleness so that they're free to remarry? Those are the two questions. And I think the former and others think this text is a permission. Is not enslaved means free to remarry. And there are four reasons I'll give you why I think that's a mistake to say that this is a permission for remarriage after that happens. The first is that Paul is a single man who we saw loves his singleness and speaks in glowing terms about the possibilities of ministry in singleness and would never have called it a state of slavery. I don't think. Verse 15, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, does not mean not enslaved to stay single. He doesn't think singleness is slavery. He loves what singleness brings his life and others if they would have it. He's not saying the brother or sister is not enslaved to stay single and thus free to remarry. It is very unlikely, I think, that Paul would describe singleness that way. 
Number two, here's the second reason why I don't think he's saying there is a permission of remarriage. Verses 10 and 11 have already pointed us in exactly the opposite direction. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. I think he's appealing directly there to the historic sayings we've been looking at. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, with that staring me right in the face, if she does separate, she should remain unmarried. It's very hard for me to swing back over when I get to verse 15 and say, he's saying, you don't have to stay unmarried. You can go ahead and remarry, though your spouse is still living. Number three, I'll put in here a little princess here. We have seen in this church spouses like that return years later. I have done weddings 10 years after divorces. Number three, The brother or sister is not bound or not enslaved. Paul's argument for this in verse 16 doesn't support that you don't have to stay single. It supports that you don't have to stay married. Look at it, verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What's he saying? He's saying, don't use the argument, I have to stay with him, otherwise I won't save him. He said, how do you know whether you'll save him? You can't know whether you save him. Don't make war on this man or this woman to keep her. If they're making war on you to let him go, you let him go. You don't know whether staying together will save them. That's an argument for the fact that you don't have to stay married, not you don't have to stay single. Finally, number four, verse 39 also supports this view. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried, to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So it seems to me that Paul and Jesus are of one mind, that followers of Jesus are radically devoted to one husband, one wife, as long as they both shall live. And this ideal tells the gospel most clearly. Christ died for his bride and never forsakes her, nor she him. Last question. There are more but this is all we have time for. Are there any exceptions? No exceptions? That would free a married person to marry again other than death? Are there any exceptions? And my answer is no, but I am in the minority. I am in the very little minority among biblical interpreters. You need to know that, okay? Piper is weird. 
I mean, you should decide whether it looks like I'm weird from texts, but as far as evangelical teachers go, I am in a very small minority. If you want somebody to give you a permission for divorce, knock on any church, almost. But don't knock on this one, because um, at least if you come to my office, that's not what I'm going to counsel you to do. Now, the text, Matthew 19, 3 through 12, which was printed wrong, and I apologize, Eric, it was my fault, printed wrong in the bulletin. Matthew 19, 3 through 12. I invite you to go there as we move towards the close. We're almost done. And I feel bad that I must do this so quickly since it's so complicated. And, and yet I'm very glad I'm doing it quickly because it's so complicated. Because complicated things should be done not with kind of rhetorical flourish from a pulpit, but in the leisure of your of your study online, reading a paper and writing out and weighing and not under, you know, under constraint from my personality or anything like that. You, you can go, as I'll tell you in a minute, online to get the two papers that I'm going to refer to. Verse 9 of Matthew 19 is the main place where other teachers argue that there is a huge exception clause in the prohibition of divorce and remarriage. And it goes like this. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And most scholars say except for sexual immorality means except for the spouse committing adultery and if they do commit adultery against you, you are free then to divorce and remarry. Now, that's not what I think this means, but it is what most people think it means. And uh, I'll give you just a few sentences to the effect of why I think what I think. But mainly, I'm going to send you to the paper called Divorce and Remarriage, a position paper. If you just type in the word divorce in the search engine at Desiring God, you're going to get two papers. Bang. The one I wrote that defends what I've been preaching. And then another one, which I'll mention in just a minute, which is very, very important, produced by the leaders of our church along with me. In a couple of sentences, Jesus does not use the word adultery here. It's very striking. He uses the word pornoia, which is generally fornication, which is odd. Fornication. You know, married people don't commit fornication. They commit adultery. Unmarried people commit fornication. So what you, what's this word pornia doing there? This word that often not only means fornication. Jesus was accused of being born of fornication. Tip off there in John 8, 41, because they thought Joseph and Mary had had sex. Because how else can you get pregnant if you're not married? You don't have sex during engagement. So he's going to marry this pregnant woman. They must have had sex. And so Jesus was a bastard. He was born out of or conceived out of wedlock. That sets up a situation. Um, Matthew is the only gospel that tells about Joseph and 
Mary in that plight. And Matthew says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So Matthew explicitly reports that Joseph thought his wife had committed fornication and he quietly, being a just man, decided to, and the word divorce is used, because betrothal or engagement was more significant then than it is now. So there was some kind of formal separation. He was going to do this and he was just to do it. So that I'm inclined to think that as Matthew reports what Jesus says here, these words, except for fornication, simply mean, I'm not talking about fornication during betrothal. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery, except in the cases of Fornication. In other words, Joseph's situation doesn't count. It's called the betrothal view. And a lot of people think, no, that's too complicated. That won't hold water. And you need to see the 10 or 11 reasons I give for why I think that. Now, here's, here's, here's the situation at Bethlehem. Over the years... As the elders have worked on this 20 plus years now, there has never been a time when all the elders are on the same page on this issue. Never has my view uh, been the view of all the elders. And so a church like this, who is congregational but strongly elder-led, has to decide, well, what do you do about that? They don't all agree with what this verse means. And what we have done was write a position paper of the church which will provide the foundation for all of our discipline. And it isn't my view. It's a view we can all say, okay, that's what we're going to discipline for. And basically, it's the traditional historic Protestant view that uh, unrepentant adultery and protracted desertion warrant the freedom of remarriage after divorce. So that if that were to happen in this church, we would not excommunicate you. Even though I would think you're wrong to do it. Now that creates kind of a, oh, that's awkward. That's awkward. Well, it is awkward. And welcome to the real world. Right. It's a it, in one sense, it's a very beautiful thing. I hope you can feel that elders can look each other in the eye, work their heads off to try to persuade each other and come to the conclusion. We're just not seeing this the same. And we love each other. I mean, these guys are on the same page on great and glorious things. And so when you when you bump into it like that, you say, OK, now what? Well, we, we got to lead the church. We have to have a standard by which we can all agree to do discipline. Otherwise, you're not a church if you just let anything go. And so that paper called A Statement on Divorce and Remarriage in the Life of Bethlehem is there online, right as you 
look at desiringgod.org. So let me close with this. Um, It is our united prayer as the leaders of Bethlehem that uh, the people of Bethlehem would recognize the deepest, highest meaning of marriage. And it isn't sexual intimacy, as good as that is. It isn't friendship, as good as that is. It isn't mutual helpfulness, as good as that is. It isn't child-bearing and child-rearing, as good as that is. It is the deepest meaning of marriage is the flesh and blood display to the world of the covenant-keeping Christ and his church. That's what we call you to. Display that. Tell the truth about that in your marriages. We believe that through the gospel, God gives the power for that. Verse 11 of Matthew 19. After his radical call to faithfulness, Jesus said, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given, and it is given to all of his followers. There is power to obey in marriage, no matter how hard, and there's power to obey as a single, no matter how hard. It is given. It's given to those who follow Christ. If you have been sinned against, God will make it right someday, and he'll give you the power to endure until you see it made right now or at the judgment. And if you have sinned, God will give the power to repent, to receive forgiveness, and to walk in the paths of obedience that he calls you to now. The gospel of Christ crucified for our sins is the foundation of our lives. Marriage exists to display it. And when marriage breaks down, the gospel is there to forgive and heal and sustain until he comes or until he calls. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we need your hand and I pray that you would draw near now and strengthen your people with resolve. Strengthen them with forgiveness. Strengthen them with power to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.